American Christians are arguably the most generous people in the world, giving about $850 billion a year to charity. Yet we may also be the most gullible, and a huge amount of that money is squandered every year in fraud. In fact, in 2015 alone, it was estimated that $50 billion was stolen from the money that Christians gave to churches, ministries, and other nonprofits. Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce, and joining me today is Warren Cole Smith, the author of Faith-Based Fraud, a new book that documents decades of fraudulent activity by Christian organizations. It is an eye-opening book, and it exposes some of the worst hypocrisy and theft that's happened in the name of Christ over the past three to four decades. And in some ways, I've got to admit, it can be a painful topic to explore. None of us, especially those of us who call ourselves Christians, like to look at some of the absolute worst representatives of our faith. It's embarrassing, and it can be demoralizing. But that's not where Warren's book leaves us. Instead, it explores different solutions to the problem, and truly, one of the solutions is for people like you and like me to be better informed and wiser donors. So thank you for joining us today. I think you're going to be really glad that you did, and I think as a result of listening, you're going to be better equipped to spot and then to avoid the charlatans that are out there. But before I introduce Warren, I'd like to thank the sponsors of The Roy's Report, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson University is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and excellent college experience. Judson has resumed in-person classes for traditional, transfer, and adult students, and you can choose from more than 60 majors and learn in a Christian community known for its spiritual values, leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson is located on a beautiful 90-acre campus just 36 miles northwest of Chicago. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu visit. Also, if you're in the market for a car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of character. And I'm proud to partner with them for this podcast. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. That's buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today is Warren Cole-Smith, author of the new book, Faith-Based Fraud. He's also the president of Ministry Watch, an organization dedicated to bringing transparency and accountability to the Christian ministry world. He served as vice president of the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and as vice president and associate publisher at World Magazine. And once a month, I get the privilege of joining Warren for a podcast he hosts at Ministry Watch. So this is kind of fun to reverse roles and interview Warren. So Warren, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you, Julie. It's great to be with you. You've been reporting on corruption in the church for far longer than I have. And honestly, it was an incredible education to read your book. And some of the stories in there were brand new to me. But in your first chapter, you tell the story of the founder of Ministry Watch, Rusty Leonard. And I had the privilege last spring of meeting you and Rusty and just really enjoyed that and found him to be just a man without guile, somebody who has sacrificed so much for the good of the church. And I think Rusty's story is just so helpful because it shows how naive and sometimes overly trusting 
Christians can be about these Christian organizations. So can you tell us a little bit about Rusty's story and how he discovered this problem of fraud in the church? Well, I agree with you. Rusty Leonard is one of the heroes of the book and one of the heroes of my life, as a matter of fact. Rusty and his wife, Carol, were uh, financial people. Uh, Carol herself is a CPA. Rusty is uh, what is known as a CFA, a chartered financial analyst, which is uh, kind of the gold standard for examining the finances of large organizations. And he made a lot of money working for the legendary investor, Sir John Templeton. He managed literally billions of dollars for Sir John Templeton. And as Rusty was um, growing and advancing in his career and making a lot of money, he also became a donor, a philanthropist. He was a committed Christian, felt like, of course, that it was important for him to be a good steward of those resources. And Rusty said to himself, you know, I look deeply into the finances of a company before I invest money in that company. Shouldn't I look deeply into the finances of a ministry before I give money to that ministry? Seems pretty logical. So he started doing that and discovered that lots of ministries didn't like to be examined. They didn't like it when Rusty asked tough questions. They didn't like it whenever Rusty asked to see their financial statements, either their Form 990s or their audited financial statements. So that was a real eye-opening experience for Rusty, and it was an experience that led him to form Ministry Watch. Uh, Ministry Watch was uh, founded more than 20 years ago by Rusty and Carol, and uh, it has a database of the largest Christian ministries in the country. About We have about 650 of those um, ministries in our database now. Provides pretty sophisticated financial analysis so that others can do what Rusty and Carol did, which is to look deeply into the finances of those ministries. And uh, of course, we also do investigative journalism, which is kind of my piece of it. Yeah, and I so appreciate what you do and the work you do and have found you guys to be just great partners and allies in ministry and in reporting what's going on in the church. You know, I think one of the main questions people ask, especially Christians, when we address this topic is, why is this happening in the church? You know, of all people, we should be able to trust Christians and our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But clearly there are deep issues going on. And in early on in the book, you talk about a conversation that you had, I think like 12 years ago with Stephen Furtick, who is the pastor of Elevation Church, which is one of the biggest churches in the country now, 25,000 uh, people coming regularly, at least, you know, before COVID, <laughs> right. uh, attending this church. And this conversation, I just thought it was really instructive as to why some of this happened. So can you tell me a little bit about that conversation with Stephen? Yeah, you bet. Well, of course, I live in Charlotte as well, uh, as an Elevation Church, as you mentioned, is based in Charlotte. So, uh, you know, when Elevation Church started blowing up, so to speak, and and by that I mean getting bigger, I don't mean imploding, but <laughs> blowing up, um, you know, I said, hey, maybe I should do an interview with Stephen. So I went down to his office and down in southeast uh, Charlotte, and we spent about an hour together that that day. And uh, I found Stephen to be uh, a smart guy, a great communicator, um, you know, someone who was very earnest and sincere. He was very young at that time, because like you said, it was more than a dozen years ago that I had that conversation mm -hmm. with him. 
And one of the things that I asked um, Stephen then was, uh, who provides accountability for him? Um, who um, Does he have deacons? Does he have elders? And he said something that has stuck with me. He said, we're a staff-led church. He does <laughs> not have deacons and elders, at least they didn't at that time. I think that they have made some adjustments to the way they uh, organize themselves uh, since then. But, but even today, the bottom line is that there is very little accountability accountability for someone like Stephen Furtick. That experience opened my eyes to looking for that form of church government and church governance, what the the fancy word for that is church polity, uh, in other churches. And I found it, unfortunately, to be common in the evangelical world. Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, or at least it was in Seattle. That church has since gone away Mm -hmm. uh, in part because of the problems that they had there, was also a staff-led church. The elders in that church were actually the staff members of that church. So unfortunately, I think what we're seeing today is a growth in megachurches, very large churches, that are led by talented, gifted, charismatic leaders like Stephen Furtick, or in the case of Mars Hill Church, Mark Driscoll, but men who have very little accountability, folks who are not really in a position to say, hey, dude, you need to um, do things differently here, because the folks who are in a position to do that are usually people that are on the payroll of the church and can be fired by that senior pastor. And of course, it makes them very reluctant to speak up. Well, and I think it's interesting with Stephen Furtick. So your interview, I believe, was in 2008. In 2012, he built a 16,000 square foot multi-million dollar home that it seems like he kind of tried to keep secret by, you know, putting it in a trust, which is kind of the new thing that a lot of these celebrities uh, yep. within Christendom do. And uh, and then it, it came out that his salary is secret and that it's set by five out-of-town pastors. Not even the people who are giving the money have control over it. It's these five out-of-town pastors, which I'm guessing, we don't know who they are, but they're probably celebrity pastors making a huge amount of money. So again, I, I think it's really what you're putting your finger on are some really big issues within the church. And and you talk about, and I, and I think both of us have been sounding this drum, that the two things that we have to have if we're going to reform things in the church is one, transparency, right? Yep. And accountability. And these boards need to, to be independent, truly independent. We need to have churches releasing and talking about how much money they have. I know you did a seminar recently, didn't you, on how to read a 990, which is very helpful. Christian nonprofits uh, and nonprofits in general have to file these 990s, except churches don't. And a lot of these nonprofits are, you know, classifying as churches, so they don't have to file 990s. So we really don't have any transparencies with these megachurches, do we? No, we do not. And, uh, you know, Julie, you've introduced two or three really important ideas. Uh, transparency and accountability are are so important. They're a theme of the book. I know they're a theme of your ministry and mine as well. One of the key tools uh, that we use to make sure that ministries are transparent is that Form 990. It's a form that uh, all uh, nonprofit organizations have to fill out uh, because it's it's kind of one of the ways they earn their nonprofit status, if you will, is they have to disclose a lot of information on the Form 990. But as you also said, churches don't have to do that. There is a church exemption. And one of the things that we're seeing increasingly is that ministries who are not churches are claiming the church exemption in order 
to uh, not fill out that Form 990. And uh, as you already said about churches like Elevation, they've been doing this for years. They they are churches, so they don't fill out those Form 990s. And so the vast majority of the donors have no idea where the money's going. And that's really what we're about at Ministry Watch is to just make sure that donors know where the money is going so that they can be effective uh, stewards of the money that God has entrusted to them. If they decide that they want to spend that money on big salaries, well, you know, that wouldn't be my choice, but at least they know and they're making that decision intentionally. But I think a lot of people listening right now will be like, okay, we shouldn't be having these problems because now we have this self-regulating organization called the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability, ECFA. And I think they believe, a lot of Christians believe that that this is doing the job of providing, because it's in its name, right? Accountability. And yet you highlight in your book two huge scandals that involve and I think show how ineffectual the ECFA is. So the first is the Jim Baker PTL scandal. And this is a scandal that probably most people have heard of. Tell us what happened with Jim Baker and the PTL uh, scandal and, and why this became such huge news. And I think it was very, very disillusioning for a lot of Christians, because this was kind of the first time you saw this big Christian ministry, and not one that I was ever that keen on, but the first time you saw a Christian me- uh, ministry like this involved in actual fraud. Yeah, that's right. Well, Jim and Tammy Baker uh, got their start in ministry in the 1970s, but by the 1980s, they were pretty well known. In fact, they were instrumental in the formation of a, a several um, big television networks, the Trinity Broadcasting Network and the Christian Broadcasting Network. Well, they eventually formed a network of their own called the PTL Club and the PTL Network. Uh, PTL stands for Praise the Lord, though some um, smart aleck people says that it also stood for Pass the Loot, but uh, we, <laughs> we, we, we won't go there right now, except to say that for a number of years, uh, because Jim and Tammy were fun to watch, they were winsome, they were in some ways, sort of like the Regis and Kathy Lee mm. of um, Christian television, you know, they they built a big audience, and um, they decided that they wanted to uh, build this facility right near Charlotte, North Carolina, very near where I live right now, called Heritage USA. It was going to be a large um, conference center and hotels and amusement park, and in order to finance. Uh, Heritage USA. They sold these memberships in Heritage USA where people would pay a certain amount of money and that would give them benefits. They would be able to use um, the Heritage USA a certain number of days of the year. Well, obviously, if you're going to sell those kinds of memberships like a timeshare, you don't want to sell more days than there are days in the year. And unfortunately, that's what Jim and Tammy and uh, Heritage USA ended up doing. So the real nature of the fraud was not that they built Heritage USA or that they built this amusement park, but what they were actually convicted of was overselling uh, the memberships in Heritage USA. Jim Baker eventually went to prison. The PTL network collapsed. Uh, Jerry Falwell, not Jerry Falwell Jr., Mm -hmm. but Jerry Falwell, his father, tried to rescue it uh, for a while. That that attempt ended up failing. Today, Heritage USA still exists. It's owned by Morningstar Ministries, which is another questionable ministry that um, I don't talk about much in the book, but um, 
It's it just ended up being a very chaotic situation. Tens of thousands of people lost in the aggregate, uh, tens of millions of dollars in the PTL scandal. Hmm. So here's my question. Where was the ECFA when all of this was happening? Pretty interesting story about how the ECFA is involved. That's a great question. And the truth of the matter is, is that during most of the time that the uh, scandalous behavior was happening at PTL and Heritage USA, they were members of the ECFA. The ECFA had been formed um, probably a few years earlier, 1979, I believe, was the official founding date of the ECFA. And uh, the ECFA was founded in response to some concerns that Congress was going to regulate the nonprofit sector. And uh, many Christian leaders got together and said that if we form our own self-regulating organization, maybe that would keep the government at bay. And it was successful at keeping the government at bay. It was not successful at actually uh, creating any meaningful oversight of Christian ministries. And that's why the PTL network and Jim and Tammy Baker could be members of the ECFA and uh, not be held accountable at all by the ECFA for their scandalous activity. In fact, it was only after uh, all of these um, scandalous activities, the fraud came to light, mostly because of reporting by the Charlotte Observer, uh, the secular newspaper here in Charlotte, that the ECFA finally suspended the um, PTL clubs and the uh, Heritage USA's membership in the ECFA. And we've seen this over and over again, haven't we? With Gospel for Asia, the same thing happened where they were accredited by ECFA, and it's when the press reported everything about all the fraud going on that then Gospel for Asia lost its accreditation with ECFA. Same thing with Harvest Bible Chapel, which is what I'm most intimately associated with and know know the best, but just an ongoing problem over and over again. Let's turn to this new era foundation, which again, I said at the beginning, this is something I had heard of it. It wasn't completely new, but I really didn't know what this was all about. And yet this scandal, you know, is a major Ponzi scheme, as you described, and it involved hundreds of millions of dollars. And some very prominent Christian organizations were duped, like Wheaton College, like Moody Bible Institute. I mean, it's stunning what happened with this New Era Foundation. It should be a huge warning to all of us how we can be duped by people who we think are Christian brothers. Talk a little bit about this New Era Foundation, what the Ponzi scheme, you know, how it worked and how it roped so many Christians into it. Yeah, the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy was founded by a man named uh, John Bennett. John Bennett was uh, a guy that was pretty well known in evangelical circles. And John Bennett essentially claimed that he had an anonymous donor that would match the gifts of other donors to Christian ministries. So the way it would work, Julie, would be that I would give, say, $5,000 to the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy. The Foundation for New Era Philanthropy would hold my money for 90 days. They said that they put it in escrow. They would take money from this anonymous donor, and my $5,000 became $10,000. 
And then that $10,000 gift would be made to the ultimate Christian ministry, whether it be Wheaton College or Moody Bible Institute or, you know, some of the other um, organizations that were a part of this scheme. Well, that worked pretty well for a while. And a lot of Christians, especially evangelical Christians, kind of bought into the idea. They wanted to know who the anonymous donor was, but they also respected the fact that the anonymous donor wanted to remain anonymous. In fact, some even said that that's pretty biblical, that your right hand shouldn't know what your left hand is doing, and the fact that this anonymous donor wanted to remain anonymous uh, shouldn't be a red flag. So because the anonymous donor was um, hidden. We didn't know who he was. And because at least for a couple of years, Bennett was able to make good on his promises. In other words, if I gave $5,000, it would get matched and go to the ministry. Nobody got suspicious. But what in fact was happening was that there was no anonymous donor. And the reason Bennett was able to pay, say, the $10,000 to Wheaton because of my $5,000 donation was because lots and lots of other people were making donations as well. It was a complete fraud. When the, the money was just coming in faster than it was going out, but that didn't last for long. After a couple of years, the money started going out much faster than it was going in, and that's when the whole scheme fell apart. And it fell apart because of a whistleblower. One man. That's right. One man who took a look at the numbers and said, mm, this isn't adding up. I don't know why we're doing this. He started asking questions. And, you know, as Christian organizations are known to do, when he brought it to his supervisors and to those above him, they really didn't think he was on to something. That's right. <laughs> they trusted Mr. Bennett. They, they trusted that he was doing the right thing. But it shows how one man... And then one reporter brought this all to light. So describe what happened with that. It's a really great story. Well, it is a great story. And uh, Albert Meyer is the man that you're talking about. He was an accountant and uh, a sort of a, an adjunct part-time professor at Spring Arbor College, a Christian college in Michigan, because Albert Meyer was trained in accounting and because he knew who Ponzi was the originator of the Ponzi scheme. It just didn't make sense to him. It didn't add up. So he started paying attention, started doing some research. And as you said, he brought his concerns to the leadership of Spring Arbor College. But at the time, uh, they didn't want to hear because they were making money. It was working for them. And um, in fact, um, I at one point, Albert Meyer uh, thought that if he didn't keep his mouth shut, he was probably going to lose his job. Mm -hmm. And it was a job that he really needed because he was a young man at that time. And he was, you know, supporting a, you know, a growing family, wasn't making a lot of money. And, uh, but he kept at it. He kept uh, feeding information to reporters. Finally, he got a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, um, Steve Stecklow, Steve Stecklow to get interested in the story. And as uh, a consequence of that interest, uh, a front page story on the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy was finally published in the Wall Street Journal, uh, published in large part because of the information that Albert Meyer was able to provide. And that was ultimately what brought down the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy. It's a great story of the courage 
and the power of a single man, a whistleblower, who was willing to tell the truth despite circumstances that would have caused many a lesser person to buckle. And it's also, by the way, Julie, and this is where I take a lot of encouragement, and I think you should too, Mm -hmm. the power of journalism. Uh, The fact that uh, even Albert Meyer might not have been able to make a difference if he was not able to get the attention of of a newspaper, and it was the newspaper accounts made public that ultimately was the straw that broke the camel's back. Absolutely. And almost always, isn't it, with stories we report, there's usually a whistleblower or a number of whistleblowers who are working really in conjunction as our sources to feed us information. And you you can't do it without uh, those people speaking up. But you're right. We can't bring these stories to light without a good and robust investigative journalism. And you write, and I love this, you say investigative journalism is vital to the maintenance of liberty and justice. These are not just Western ideals. These are biblical ideals. That's exactly right. You know, we see this throughout Scripture, that as Christians, we are children of the light. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Uh, I mean, these ideas of transparency and vulnerability and accountability are just woven throughout Scripture, really from Genesis to Revelation. So I don't think we as investigative journalists or those of our listeners that might might be concerned about being good stewards should ever apologize for asking tough questions of folks that are involved in ministry. Because if those folks are doing good work, if the folks that we're asking these questions of are doing good work and they're doing honorable work, our tough questions give them an opportunity to shine. It is only when they are behaving badly that our questions should ever create a problem. Hmm. And I'm going to ask the question again, where was the ECFA when all this was going on at New Era? Well, the ECFA was there. They were uh, the the Foundation for New Era Philanthropy uh, was a member of the ECFA. Many of the organizations that were victims of the scheme were members of the ECFA. The ECFA, unfortunately, once again, uh, failed to act. Now, if you, I should say this, uh, Julie, in all fairness, that mm-hmm. once the scandal broke, the ECFA did get involved, and they tr- it tried to work with their members to recover the funds that had been illegally taken and return them to their rightful owners. But Albert Meyer, the whistleblower in this case, the hero of this story, really is um, very critical of the ECFA's role because that money was illegally gained anyway, that the law would have required most of those ministries to give that money back in the first place. He said that the ECFA's role was very minimal, very nominal, and in fact, they were a contributor to the problem developing, and they shouldn't take credit for solving the problem after it had been exposed. Well, and didn't the ECFA claim that they had recouped like 90% of the money that had been given through the New Era Foundation, and yet they only recouped the 90% that hadn't been spent yet, but millions and millions of those dollars had already been spent, so they weren't able to be recouped. That's correct. Yeah. 
Well, this brings us to the evangelical industrial complex. This is uh, a term that you and I both use a lot. I think it was actually Sky Jathani who first coined the term. But this is this web of Christian publishing, megachurches, parachurches, conferences, all these things that work together and depend on each other to make money and to stay solvent. And so when someone powerful in the Christian community does something wrong, many Christian leaders and institutions, instead of bringing accountability, they look the other way because they depend on each other for their survival. And you give two examples of how this works. One, you've already mentioned Mark Driscoll. Now, Mark Driscoll was involved in in doing, you know, a lot of bullying behavior. And I think when his elder board was about to remove him, it was more that behavior that they called him on. But yet the whole book selling scheme that much more shows us how the evangelical industrial complex was involved with Mark Driscoll. So tell us about, you know, that part of the story and how publishers and radio networks and and different organizations got behind him. Mark Driscoll and his wife, Grace, wrote a book called Real Marriage. And uh, that book ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, that's an important goal for writers, because if you get a book on the New York Times bestseller list, what happens is that bookstores all across the country will start carrying your book. In fact, you've probably walked into bookstores where right near the front door, they'll have a display of books that are on the New York Times bestseller list. So it's a it becomes a huge accelerant to book sales to get your book on the New York Times bestseller list. Also, you can say for the rest of your life that you are a New York Times bestselling author. It becomes an important part of a lot of authors' personal brand. So getting on the New York Times bestseller list is an important goal for many authors so important that they will stoop to unethical and maybe even illegal means to do so. And in the case of Mark Driscoll, he in effect bought his way onto the New York Times bestseller list. The way he did that was by hiring a company called ResultSource. ResultSource is a company that was set up purely to put books on bestseller lists. They have a network of people scattered around the country, and they provide those people with debit cards and other kinds of ways to purchase books so that it doesn't look like it's a bulk purchase, that the it looks like the book is being bought by thousands of people in thousands of locations all around the country. And it basically deceives the people who compile the bestseller list into thinking that these are organic sales and not orchestrated sales. Result source was hired by Marshall Church and Mark Driscoll for the total cost, including the purchase of the books and the fee to result source was nearly a quarter of a million dollars. And it was successful. The book did end up on the New York Times bestseller list. And Result Source was used by many celebrity authors. Uh, I was able to identify at least a couple more in the book that used Result Source. And sort of the common thread for all of the authors that used Result Source was a literary agent named Celie Yates. Celie Yates was Mark Driscoll's literary agent, and he was the literary agent for a number of other writers that uh, ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, he was also a friend of the president 
of Result Source. Mm-hmm. Just an interesting uh, nugget here. When I was working in radio, and I remember uh, I was saying I was at the point where we're incorporating uh, as a nonprofit. A radio executive said, oh, well, hey, I, you got to talk to Celie Yates. I'll put you in touch, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I ended up talking to Celie Yates, not realizing this. And then when I read this, I was like, man, I don't want anything to do with with uh, with Celie Yates, given his involvement in these things. But again, I got that name from a radio executive. Why? Because they're all connected. Why? Because these publishers as well are connected in. And, and, and we saw it, didn't we, with, with Driscoll? When this all came to light, you didn't immediately see the whole complex bringing heat on Driscoll necessarily. They did eventually take some steps, right? But initially not. Well, that's exactly right. And and, and the reason, of course, is because, it, as you rightly said, they're all connected. I mean, uh, Celia Yates, for example, is also the literary agent for David Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And David Jeremiah, of course, has a very large radio and television ministry. That radio and television ministry buys time on Christian radio and television stations around the country. And when I say buy time, I mean they spend ten, you know, as much as $10 million a year on um buying time from Salem and, you know, other radio networks. So it becomes very, very difficult to criticize your largest customer. And the book publishers depend upon the radio stations to give their authors interviews. The radio stations depend upon the book publishers to do advertising. So it is just a complete incestuous kind of circle where one hand is feeding the other, or I don't know what metaphor to use here, Julie, but one 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 hand is scratching somebody else's back and so on and so <laughs> forth. So whatever metaphor you want to use, they're, they're all in this together, so to speak. And it becomes very difficult for folks that are in Christian media, even if they did have report, actual reporters. And by the way, Salem has very few real reporters on their staff. Mm-hmm. But even if they decided they did want to investigate this, they probably wouldn't be allowed to because of the financial conflicts of interest involved. And you mentioned Dr. David Jeremiah. He did the same thing with his books. Did he hire Result Source? Well, he never said so explicitly, but he mentioned in his in one of the acknowledgments, in fact, a couple of the acknowledgments of his books, that um, he wanted to thank the mastermind behind his marketing of his books, Kevin Small. Well, Kevin Small is the president of Result Source. So while he never admitted explicitly that he paid Result Source, it is clear that he worked with uh, Result Source and with Kevin Small. And by the way, I should say that Celia Yates is both David Jeremiah's literary agent and chairman of the board of David Jeremiah's Turning Point Ministries. Oh, my goodness. Well, the the web gets even more sticky with David Jeremiah because he was part of National Religious Broadcasters, and he was with the ECFA. I mean, initially, because of this, ECFA was moving towards actually taking away his accreditation, he he pulled out of the ECFA first, right? And out of NRB. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, and, and, you know, and I got to say, we, you know, Julie, you and I have uh, been hard on the ECFA. <laughs> and I think that there's reason for that. I'm, I'm not apologizing for that. But I also want to say 
that I think the ECFA is a co-laborer in this process with us. I don't think they do as much as they can or should. I believe that the limitations of the ECFA are why organizations like Ministry Watch and the Roy's Report exist. But I do want to say that the ECFA does a pretty good job of setting standards that ministries should live up to. Now, they don't do a great job of policing the organization's to adhere to those standards, but I believe that the standards that they actually set are wise and prudent, and I think that they do a good service to the evangelical world. I would agree with you that the standards are good. I I think where we would disagree maybe is that I believe that by accrediting organizations, they're giving a false sense of security to donors. And that, to me, is really dangerous. So that's where I kind of feel like they're not allies because they're giving this false sense of security to so many donors who think, well, ECFA has looked into it. It's good. I don't disagree with that. I don't fully agree with it either, because as in the case of David Jeremiah, they were starting to take sanctions against David Jeremiah. I don't think they do it often enough. I agree with you that they do give donors a false sense of security, because when an organization joins the ECFA, they are almost never scrutinized after that. Mm-hmm. And But in the case of David Jeremiah, I think things were actually working the way they should. David Jeremiah, in part because of this book buying scheme and because of some other issues that were related to that ministry, the Turning Point Ministries voluntarily resigned from the ECFA, but they voluntarily resigned because they were being reviewed by the ECFA. It's probably going to be inevitable that they were going to be asked to leave. Now, that created a problem for David Jeremiah, and it created a problem from the National Religious Broadcasters, because the National Religious Broadcasters at that time, and this was about 10 years ago, had a standard that said that if you are going to be on the executive committee of the National Religious Broadcasters, you had to be a member in good standing of the ECFA. And so when David Jeremiah left the ECFA, it forced him to leave the NRB as well. So you had this strange situation where you had one of the largest religious broadcasters in the country who could not be a member of the National Religious Broadcasters because he was no longer a member of the ECFA. Well, for the NRB, for the National Religious Broadcasters, that created an untenable situation. So they changed their standard to allow organizations to be members of the National Religious Broadcasters without being members of the ECFA. They did have to join another organization. It was the Better Business Bureau's Wise Giving Alliance, which has very different standards uh, altogether. So uh, it, it basically became a workaround that the NRB created for organizations like David Jeremiah and in some ways left the ECFA out in the cold. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. And it, the interesting thing is that recently David Jeremiah just got a big award from the NRB. So that was kind of came right. around full circle. That's right. He was named to you know National Religious Broadcasters Hall of Fame, which is ironic in the extreme. There's no doubt about it. Well, and I think people should know 
NRB and ECFA share board members. And so you, again, this whole evangelical industrial complex, it, it is all interconnected. And these board members are often presidents or chairmen of, of different Christian organizations. So I think people need yeah. to really do due diligence to find out who's in charge and, and how these organizations are operating. Let, let's turn to another possible fix of the problem, which would be government regulation. And I think as Christians, we're loath to want government regulation, and yet maybe there needs to be some. But there was some push by a senator, uh, Senator Grassley, to bring some accountability, especially on some of these really, really outrageous prosperity preachers. And those prosperity preachers became known as the Grassley Six, and there was an investigation a lot of people don't know about this investigation, but it's really, I think what happened with it is very important for us to know. Uh, Warren, tell us about the Grassley Six and what happened. Yeah, well, I devoted an entire chapter to the Grassley Six because I think you're right. A lot of people think that there are two great hopes for accountability and transparency. One is the ECFA and the other is the government. What I say in my book is that no, neither one of those fixes are going to work. The problem with depending upon the government for a number of reasons. Number one, increased government regulation is going to add a layer of bureaucracy and cost to doing business as a Christian ministry. And number two, the Grassley investigation ultimately resulted in absolutely no action or sanctions being imposed against the six ministries that were investigated. So even though millions of dollars, possibly tens of millions of dollars were spent on the Grassley investigation, nothing happened. We can't depend upon the government to police Christian ministries. They don't have the investigative tools or the uh, theological tools to really be able to discern what is going on with the ministry and who sort of the good guys are and the bad guys are. So that's the reason that I say neither the ECFA nor the government is the right answer and that we should be looking for third ways uh, in order to create transparency and accountability in the ministry world. Right. And as a Grassley Six showed, you know, politicians will be political. And so... Yeah, when, right, right. When, you can't take... There's an old saying, uh, Julie, you can't take the politics out of politics. Yeah. And that's right. The, the political considerations are going to be too great. And in the case of Grassley, for example... Uh, the, the financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009. And in fact, I interviewed Senator Grassley for the book, and I said, Senator Grassley, did the Grassley Six, did these six televangelists get a get-out-of-jail-free card because of the financial crisis that you guys just got distracted by other things? Now, of course, Senator Grassley denied um, that, but I have a hard time, you know, thinking that maybe that's not true. Yeah, I think one thing that all of America is aware of, especially after, you know, the last four years, is that evangelicals are a major voting bloc. And so it's going to be hard to get the government to really police evangelical organizations. But I just want to kind of land this plane and talk about where the responsibility lies, because we've said ECFA isn't going to clean it up. The government isn't going to clean it up. There has been, and I will say, this is what motivates me to do my work and you to do your work, is there's been substantial change by whistleblowers and journalists speaking up and bringing light in these situations. But, but ultimately, we only highlight the worst, the biggest, and this is happening on a lot of levels in a lot of uh, organizations from big to small. 
And it really is educating donors, isn't it? It, it really is those listening who need to take responsibility for this and need to be wiser in the way that they spend their money. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, uh, Julie, if you, each individual donor, I mean, there might be somebody listening here that gives away millions of dollars a year and has, you know, a significant influence. But the vast majority of us are probably going to say, you know what, I, you know, I give a few thousand dollars a year to my church and maybe a few hundred dollars a year to various Christian ministries. What kind of an impact can I have? And I would say that the answer to that question is you can have a tremendous impact. That if you ask tough questions before you give that money, and also if you aggregate your efforts with the efforts of of dozens, of hundreds, of thousands, dare I believe that maybe one day there might be millions of donors that are asking these kinds of questions, I believe it'll have a tremendous impact. And as you mentioned, Julie, early in the in the program, Christians are incredibly generous. The 650 ministries that are in our Ministry Watch database are responsible for $30 billion in giving every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the combined revenue of those 650 ministries. And those are just the 650 largest ministries in this country. There are hundreds of thousands, nearly a million others. If the donors to all of these ministries got together or even acting individually, but knowing that others were also acting individually and started asking tough questions before they gave money, I believe that it could have a very serious reformative effect on Christian ministries in this country and on the way all of us do stewardship and giving. And so I really believe that the responsibility lies with each one of us individually. Every single one of us that are listening to this conversation can ask tough questions before they give their money. And I believe that in the aggregate, that will have a tremendous impact on Christian ministries in this country. Amen. I second everything you just said. Uh, Warren, fantastic book, Faith-Based Fraud. Uh, If people want to get their hands on this, how, how do they get it? Well, it's going to be tough because we were giving it away as a donor premium for folks who gave money to Ministry Watch, but we're out of books. And so um, stay tuned. We've got to, we've, we're uh, probably not going to publish any more copies of the book until January, but after January, we are looking at maybe a publisher or doing an additional printing ourselves. Wow. So I have a valuable copy right here. It's a limited edition. You do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Warren, thank you so much for writing this book and for joining me on this podcast. And thanks so much for listening. Listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Royce. If you'd like to find me online, just go to julieroyce, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Also, make sure you subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then, if you would, share the podcast on social media so more people can find out about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.